Are you or anyone else you know interested in buying or selling a home? How about saving the planet? Climate Change Realty is the only company operating in all 50 states that allows you to create thousands of dollars in donations absolutely for free. Yes, that's right. Our service and your donations are free. Climate Change Realty can connect you with one of the best real estate agents in your city. And because of that connection, a full 25% of your real estate agent's commissions will be donated to a 501c3 nonprofit organization of your choice. Real estate agents earn between 2 to 3% of the final sales price when they help you buy or sell a home. That's at least $500 donated for every $100,000 worth of real estate sold when you find your real estate agent with Climate Change Realty. Visit www.ccrbolder.com today and click Find an Agent to help us transform the real estate market into a battery for the regenerative economy. Welcome to the podcast. Chris, really great to meet you, man. Thanks for taking some time to come on the podcast. It means the world to me. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, you're very welcome, man. Um, I always take um, referrals from Glenn Haynes very seriously. That guy's uh, that guy's the man near and dear to my heart. I was the the second episode on his podcast. He hasn't been releasing too many episodes recently, but we were like like podcast brothers. But you know, that's, he's a, an episode for another day. But um, yeah, we always love to get this show started with some background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Sure. Well. I'll just start off with saying I don't take anything Glenn Haynes tells me very, very seriously at all. So he's joking <laughs> around. He's a very good guy. Um, but yeah, I've been in environmental compliance work now for about 16 years. Um, I got into this industry because I didn't really know what I, what I honestly wanted to do at first. And I thought I was going to go to law school coming out of college and I was planning to study environmental law. So I was started on that path but then the idea of practicing every day just didn't sit properly with me and that I had a feeling that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do so out of college I actually took a little time and even just bartended to try to find a couple of answers for myself and find some opportunities and ended up getting my first job in environmental compliance from one of my bar guests we just started talking about climate change and things I was interested in. And before I knew it, I, I actually had a job. I stayed with that guy for about, oh God, seven years or so. And he, I was very, very fortunate. He was the type of guy who had been doing it for decades and had all this institutional knowledge in his head. So tried to pick his brain as much as I possibly could and learn as much as I could from him. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, I, I stayed there for a good amount of time, but it was an incredibly, incredibly tiny company. So I knew I wouldn't have experience or an opportunity to actually expand upward. So after a while, I actually started making a couple, a couple of connections. <clears throat> I was able to reach out and get find some other opportunities to go into project management and business development, and that's how I ended up where I am. Cool, man. And um, so just so the audience knows, uh, we're both Jersey boys. So so we got that connection. Where where are you from originally? I'm from central Jersey. And that's I, I know a little bit of a controversial topic. But there is in fact a central Jersey. <laughs> I was I was born, born in that born in the Edison area and spent some time spent some time North Brunswick and actually Metuchen. And I'm currently in Burlington, New Jersey, which is about a half hour north of Philadelphia trying to start up a South Jersey office for our company. Cool, man. Yeah. My mom is uh, from the Edison area originally. So I wanted, I wanted to kind of touch on that. What, uh, what bar were you working at when you've kind of found this first uh, entry point? It's, it's, I actually appreciate the question because calling it a bar was actually a little bit of a stretch. It was actually <laughs> Applebee's. <laughs> Yeah, but you never know who's going to walk in the door, man. You know, strike up a conversation with someone. Hey, man, I'm, I'm, I've been there. We used to hit the half apps uh, junior year. You know, you get your license at seventeen. Five dollar buffalo wings, kind of hard to beat. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, and there's a lot of lot of that happening. That's how I knew I definitely was not where I wanted to be at the time. But right. happy I got the opportunity I did just from talking to people. 
Yeah, happy to have you on the show today, man. Um, wh- where where did your interests in like this environmental kind of stuff come from? Why? What made you want to pursue work in this topic? Sure, I've always in, um, enjoyed the outdoors and doing basic things like hiking and uh, gardening and things like that. But then when I went to high school, I went to Catholic and Jesuit school and really got instilled with the ideals of trying to do what's called being a man for others. So I was trying to find a job and obviously support my family and all that where I could also try and do some good. And I tried to uh, be as educated on various topics as I can. So once I learned the various impacts of climate change and what was going to be coming down, honestly, I thought, okay, I probably have pretty good Josh if I go into this, but then I also have a chance to do some positive impacts and make a little bit of a positive change and hopefully, you know, set the world up a little better if I had kids down line, which is always something I definitely wanted. So that's how I, I was thinking, okay, give it a shot and just put the time in, study my butt off as much as I possibly could, went back to school a few times and it's been paying off especially lately definitely you said being a man for others i like that that's that's the way to go um yeah i heard that probably every day in high school at some context or another but at the time it was like okay okay i got it i got it but then after afterward you start thinking about it and actually and actually grow up a little bit something you want to try to strive to do so that's how I've been trying to live my life ever since. The interesting thing about that is when you say, you know, want to be a man for others, the coolest thing about it is that by doing that, you serve yourself at the highest and like or deepest and most fulfilling level. If you kind of live out this idea of, of service I talk about, I'll keep bringing this up for the rest of my life because it's so it's so obvious when when the best moments in your life is when, you know, you take your kid to a baseball game or you propose to your wife in this amazing experience or you go on a honeymoon and you're all very happy. Those moments that people really appreciate is not the moments where they're counting their dollars that they've made from selling people or ripping other people off. It's when you're really um, creating value or life into, in the world from your direct actions. And I, I just think that that stuff, um, it's really, really meaningful. So speaking of education, you recently just finished this, um, This this was it a certificate at MIT? Can you kind of tell me a little bit about that? This, but what exactly was it and what were you learning? Absolutely. Um, I guess just backing up a little bit, though, I have a couple of professional certifications, and they each require ongoing educational um, updates and trainings every year. I generally do those through attending webinars or just any type of patchwork I can do that I think makes sense. But this year, I thought, why not do a concentrated course on a topic I think is important? So I chose... So I chose to go after a certificate in sustainability sustainability management. And the course was interesting and, of course, challenging. But um, one of the biggest things they kept harping on over and over again is that sustainability isn't an issue for any one sector or one group of people. It's truly something that all of us have to be thinking about and can make smart choices and plan now save money over time and have a far far um far far lower impact than we currently have gotcha so i don't think we we haven't directly covered this idea of environmental compliance which i'm not entirely sure what that means so could you kind of give a little bit of background on just the general topic of environmental compliance sure sure um any industrial site in this country is going to have to have various permits to operate. And those are often broken down based on environmental impacts associated with, with their operations, whether it's stormwater, whether it's air emissions, soil permitting, et cetera, et cetera. Each of these types of permits will have, will have various um, conditions that the site has to meet. It's oftentimes in the form of 
actual emission limits. They have to stay under uh, annual testing. They have to do uh, maintenance. Just goes on and on and on. And, and a complicated site can have a permit over a thousand pages without blinking. And that's hundreds and hundreds of permit conditions and things that they have to be sure that they do or they get in trouble from the state and federal government. And of course, if they don't do it, they're not living up to the promises they're making to the surrounding towns and being, being more impactful than they have to be. So a large part of our job is just walking them through all of that, telling them what they have to do and trying to plan and budget for them um, the best path forward, often going out a few years. And they're probably always really excited to talk to you and hear from you, right? <laughs> In general, I find people are always excited to talk to me. I am, I'm charming or something. I honestly don't know. But <laughs> not, all joking aside, um, it's oftentimes that things that they don't have bandwidth to do internally or a scientific background to understand a lot of it is what we find a lot of times too. So they want to just understand, okay, what's being asked of me? Are you that's actually being asked of me? Are you sure? That's something I hear a lot of also. And then just, okay, how do we do it? And that's the biggest thing. Um, you don't want to give your clients any surprises. So if you can actually map out 12 months or even half of that at a time, oftentimes they're going to say, okay, you're doing a good job. Are you familiar with what went on in Northern Jersey with the Ford Motor Company in like the, the mid 1900s? I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to, but I so, definitely got it. So what you're saying, it reminds me. So I'm from Ringwood, New Jersey and Ford Motor Company used to just, so I'm understanding that your industry is perhaps a bit newer than, than mo automotive because they used to just dump sludge and waste in the woods, like 15 miles from where I grew up. And there is a, a community of people who um, are really connected to that land and have lived there for generations and generations. And they've they've had these um, recurring health issues because, for example, I watched this whole documentary on it because we all from everyone from Ringwood knew about this. Like there's in a documentary, they talk about their kids would make like mud pies and sludge pies and like would be eating like toxic waste. Does this sound like familiar to you or no? I know exactly what you're talking about. And the, the example I heard a lot is how they would dump paint, just tons and tons of paint, yeah. and eventually it would kind of bubble up, and the kids would go and pick it up and think it was like a candy or something. Yeah. Just pop in their mouths. Um, the important point you have to think about and actually, actually remember there is that the EPA wasn't created until 72, and a lot of the, a lot of the toughest air emissions, because that's actually why I specialize in air emission stuff, a lot of the toughest amendments on that front weren't enacted until 91. So that's not very long ago. No. So, of course, there's a ton of industrial history before that point that states with a long background like New Jersey are still trying to remedy. Totally. And that's gross. And we're going to be dealing with all sorts of our impacts for uh, probably centuries to come. So before we kind of dive into exactly what you're doing now, any like particular projects that you worked on throughout your career that stand out as particularly impactful in society? Sure. Um, I've had a lot. I've had a good experience to work on a lot of different projects through industrial, industrial sectors and geography. That's one of the good parts about uh, being a consultant is especially if you work at any of the bigger houses like Acom and Trinity, I've done all those. Um, you're going to have opportunities to, to work on fun stuff. But the, I'd say the most impactful one was two years ago. I actually got to lead the air permitting team for Mayflower Wind for their, for, for their offshore wind development project off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. Um, and it was about eight months of my time to lead this project and do what was essentially a chapter in what's called a construction and operations plan or a COP and just be responsible for all, all the stuff relating to air emissions. And it's 
the only time in my life that I can honestly say I put that much effort and time into leading a single project that made people and signing, being the only one to sign a document with like 18 people copied after me. I, I was kind of laughing at, at that point. Like, this is kind of cool. I like this. But then um, thinking about it more, the best part about it was the project itself. And Offshore Winds has incredible, incredible potential for emission, for emission benefits over time. But they're long projects, take a long time to permit, and then also a minimum of two years to build. So it's a lot of thought that has to be put in ahead of time to just hopefully benefit um, the coming, coming generations. So on this offshore wind project, you were kind of making sure that the ocean wasn't being polluted or what exactly were you focusing on around the project? Sure. The um, construction operations plan that I was talking about, what it does is it tries to get as concise a snapshot as detailed as it possibly can as to what the impacts of each project are going to be. There are various impacts across all media. Um, benthic impacts are going to be having impact on the fish, um, are you going to have any impact on birds and noise, et cetera, et cetera. My area was air emissions. What are the air emissions going to be associated with this project? Exactly where is going to be impacted? Um, what ports are we going to use? So where are the boats going to be coming from? Where are the helicopters going to be coming from? Just try to actually map out the whole thing so I can actually segregate where each emissions bucket should go. And a lot of a lot of time modeling emissions, dealing with various emission factors and load factors and that type of thing, and just going back and forth on dozens of calls with operations guys, um, just talking about what the capabilities of their individual vessels are and how many they would need, that kind of thing. So you're talking about the emissions created by the boats and people who are building the windmills, which are eventually, or the wind turbines, which are eventually going to be zero emission. So am I, am I understanding that correctly? Not zero emissions, but close to it. But the, during the construction phase of these projects, there are emissions from the various construction vehicles of course. on road, and then the a large bucket large bucket of actual emissions from the vessels as well. Um, and there are lots of rules that the federal government through the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management puts out as to how those emissions have to be allocated, um, which, which ones can be offset and how, and then exactly um, what portions of the project have to go towards which bucket. So it's, like I said, a whole bunch of um, boxes to check to be sure you're doing everything as you should. Um, lots of meetings with EPA and state government. Yep. Cool. You, and you said that the, the turbines aren't going to be zero emissions. They're close to zero emissions. What what energy is required to keep the turbines um, turning? Well, it's, if you think about it, um, you have to, it's not just the turbine itself. It's also the operations to oh, yeah, keep yeah. that turbine going. <laughs> so if you count the maintenance that you're going to have to do going right, out right. to those turbines, it's it's small. I mean, it's... But it's a great we're point, man. Our, we're definitely going on the right path by doing this type of thing. But if you want to try and be all-inclusive and get an impression of what your impacts are going to be, you still have to count... Um, what those are going to be during during the maintenance phase, but yeah, it drops off the edge of a cliff compared to um, the first couple of years during construction. Obviously, a lot lot more is happening, a lot lot hot and heavy stuff, and then after that, once the turbines are actually operating, then the states that are associated with them see drastic emission reductions. It's essentially no. like. I was just going to say actually real fast. It's essentially like taking a large 
power plant off the grid for 30 years. No, but I, I love that perspective and the fact that there's regulation behind this and that you're looking at it. I mean, because if you're a, a wind power salesman, you're like zero emissions, zero energy. And it's like you can't really, you know, I'm, I'm a real skeptical person just in general. I don't believe anything 100%. But like, that's such a great point that, of course, there's maintenance. You still have to keep the uh, the turbine going. But maybe, you know, and then um, aviation and um Boats are one of the most difficult technologies to decarbonize. So if you're going out into the sea, because this is offshore, we're talking about it's going to take some sort of energy to make sure that the thing that's making the zero carbon energy is still up and operating. So maybe down the line, it could eventually get really even closer to zero emissions. But I think that's an excellent point that that you'll never hear someone who's trying to promote wind energy be like, it's they're just going to say it's zero. But there's always something else going on. We got to we got to keep the the power on somehow today, and we got to get things built now, and we only have certain amounts of technology exactly yeah. right and if you actually deal in sciences there are very 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 few absolutes so right. if someone ever tells you an absolute they're, they're actually probably probably lying or stretching the truth a little bit um but on that vessel point though real fast another thing that could act as a potential bottleneck is something called the jones act which says that all industrial all industrial and commercial vessels have to be flagged in the United States. Only problem with that, the type of vessels they're going to need for these operations are all from overseas, from different countries. So currently, I think we only have one or two even under construction in this country, and we have to have a lot more awfully fast, and it costs a heck of a lot of money. So that's something a lot of people smarter than me are trying to handle right now. Yeah, man. There's lots of people smarter than both of us doing all sorts of good things. Good thing that we got them around. We can, hopefully we can help them out with some um, some support in some way. Um, so Absolutely. what's going on? What's going on these days? What are you doing as an air practice leader at Enviro Science? And then I believe it's Enviro Science Delaware, right? That's right. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I had the opportunity to work for a lot of larger firms in my time and gain a lot of good experience. But then Enviro Sciences offered me the opportunity opportunity to start up an air group essentially from scratch and do it how I wanted. Love it. So it's not it's honestly a chance I couldn't pass up. And I was given the um the power I'll say to focus my my development time and various outreach on anything I wanted to as long as it made sense. So the last couple of years I've been doing a lot on environmental justice and offshore winds just because of that reason. That's how I wanted to get our name out there. I wanted to show our technical expertise, but then our also our, our capability and our desire to also do impactful impactful work. So a company is, I think, one of the only ones in the area going after that type of a focus. And um, spending as much time as I do on the two topics. So I'm very, very proud of that and of the opportunities I've gotten over the last year plus to do presentations like this, publications, um, just a lot more and a higher intensity than I have in the past. So do you have a focus more on, on air quality or is it relating to like emissions reductions? They go hand in hand. Because if you think about it, if, if, if there's poor air quality in a certain area, um, there's going to be emission reductions that are mandated by the state or federal government to get that back down. And that's where all this is really. It ends up being a game of adjustments. Um, and I'll just say, to try and be honest, we've come a long way in the last couple of decades, especially here in New Jersey. There's incredible congestion and lots of industrial companies each of those companies has impacts but if you compare what the actual emissions are now as to where they were even a decade ago there's fantastic reductions but there's still hot spots that we still have to address which um which actually gets into the environmental justice areas and there's a large, large reason as to why that's been as big an issue as it has been the last few years. 
So can you explain a bit this idea of having poor air quality? Because I think it's something that a lot of people don't think about unless you live in Boulder, Colorado, when you're getting smoked to death every summer and you go go and look at your phone and, or you live in Denver and it says you have 120 uh, air quality index, which is terrible. So how much of in this developed American country, how much of an issue is air quality? Well, it's a good point you just brought up. It's often geographic differentials there and it can change on a daily basis by things like wildfire. There'd be certain times where if you have a wildfire impact, you have actually worse air quality than countries, I'm sorry, cities abroad like Delhi or Shanghai Mm -hmm. or various other ones who are notoriously bad. But then you also have various, various, various weather patterns that will make certain areas like Los Angeles almost always have poor air quality problems for various reasons. Even they have got come a long way. Um, one of the biggest drivers, though, and this goes back again to the environmental justice work that I do, is the concentration of industrial sites within a certain geography. And if you have more sites, almost it doesn't even matter what type of industrial site. If you have more of them, more emission sources, it only stands to reason that you're going to have more particulate matter in the air. And that's the stuff that causes things like asthmas, childhood asthma, loss of time at work. If you go further with it, more climate impacts and sensitivity to those, unfortunately, also premature death, things like that. How do you how do they measure the air quality? Because I see that it does change like every day. Sure, they have what's called ambient air monitors stationed at various points throughout large cities and towns. So if it changes on a daily basis, it has to come from a from some type of actual real time real time uh, actual measurement. And that's what is most likely. But then there's also tech coming out currently that has um, even things on your cell phone. You could have by little attachment that does it. Um, but that's obviously not on a deaf and, deaf and micro level. Um, but it's also an area that's getting ex- expanded funding to go into more impoverished areas, environmental justice areas and do more monitoring so they have a better idea on that day-to-day basis as to what the exact levels are. And then also, obviously, when they have a better handle on the actual data, they have better ideas of what they might have to do to get it down if they have to. Right. So let's, let's chat a bit about this idea of environmental justice and how is that different from just like mitigating the impacts of climate change or trying to stop climate change? You seem to have a very a large interest in this topic. Um, what, what are like the key tenets of environmental justice? Sure. Um, environmental justice itself is a concept that started decades ago with a couple of trailblazers. Um, one that comes to mind is Dr. Robert Bullard. I out of Texas, Dr. Paul Mohai out of uh, out of uh, currently our University of Michigan, many others. There's history in this country of what's called environmental racism, and essentially it stems from practices, m- most popular of those being redlining. What what redlining was. It didn't allow minorities, oftentimes black Americans, to buy homes in certain areas. It would only let them concentrate in what ended up being industrial areas closer to these properties that often at the time didn't have any emission controls at all. Over time, people want to congregate together, only allowed to congregate in certain certain parts of the country. And over time, they develop various health problems because of these elevated contamination levels in those areas. Thankfully, we've ended policies like redlining, but because of zoning issues and lots of other 
various issues, you still have a higher concentration of industrial areas in minority towns and cities than none. In fact, and this is a controversial issue right now, the number one indicator for environmental justice areas in this country is concentration of minority populations. If you look at the highest density of minority areas in this country, there's a pretty damn good chance those are also going to be in environmental justice areas and areas with elevated uh, contamination contamination levels. Um, so various states and the federal government are trying to do things about that over the last couple of years and install compliance programs to try to go after especially the bad industrial actors who haven't been doing everything that they're supposed to be doing on the compliance and and especially target those guys to try to bring their emissions down as best they can and try to knock off a lot of those health effects. Interesting. Yeah. It's definitely something that people should be thinking about when they're thinking about climate change mitigation. It's not, it's not just affecting disproportionately um, impoverished countries, but um, impoverished people or, or other community. Yeah, I guess communities that tend to have had a bad, a bad, bad deal over history are going to have a, a bad deal as, as things continue to, to get worse. Um, so what is the kind of, go ahead. Actually just jump on that point also, Ethan. Um, yeah, it's, I'm actually have a paper going in with EPA right now in the International Journal of Earth and Environmental Sciences on this topic. And one of the things we say in the paper, and I'm paraphrasing here, but climate change doesn't hunt out minority groups. There's no, like, there's no holding beacon here, but the inability to adapt properly to climate impacts and the propensity to be located in various areas in the country that might have a greater number of these impacts combined tells you that minorities are going to be feeling climate impacts more at a disproportionate level than non-minorities. And that's a problem that's only going to get worse over time if you don't do smart planning now and build off of the gains that we've already actually had. So given that information, what can we do to kind of mend that that gap of impact? Is there anything we can do to help? Sure. Well, thankfully, and in that paper I mentioned, one of the things we do is look at what three cities in this country have been doing over the last few years to do their planning and where exactly they are in the hierarchy of smart growth planning. Um, generally, every... If a town or a city wants to address this, they have to get the smart people together who know about this stuff, develop working groups. They have to get some type of um, local tracking tool or mapping tool to get an idea of what the impacts are. And then they have to study what, what exactly is being done on these topics in other parts of the country. Go back and forth, vote on what, what they exactly want to do, what they have the funding to do, and then put each of those out to public comment as you go. The best thing any individual can do is to get involved with environmental groups in their various areas and just keep track as to what's currently being talked about. Because especially if you're in any big city in this country, there's going to likely be a working group or two talking about these issues and if it's environmental justice or especially climate change there's going to be some type of smart growth land being discussed oftentimes it actually breaks a little bit along political lines unfortunately as to how aggressive uh, the city actually wants to be and how much they they're okay with allocating their funding towards it but fact is we all have to get there and it's not a political issue. It's a scientific, scientific actual reality that I hope we see more steps towards in the future.
Yeah. Well, sounds like you're you're doing the best you can to, to make them happen, man. So I think that's pretty awesome. What is the model that kind of, yeah, you got it, brother. What is the model that kind of New Jersey or, or like local communities in New Jersey would be like proposing? Because I know that New Jersey has a, a high minority population and it also has a lot of industrial kind of stuff built there. So what are they kind of proposing by you? Actually, I'm happy you asked that. Um, in the fall of 2020, Governor, Governor Murphy actually signed the most comprehensive environmental justice compliance law that there ever has been. And one of the things that the law finally does is put up a screening tool to hopefully stratify and get a better idea of the impacts from the bad actors in a certain area as opposed to the good ones. And if those bad actors, quote unquote, are judged to have an undue impact on the local community, they're going to be asked to do the various things to get those impacts down. It's judged by what's called a combined stressor test. They look at what these impacts are from these 18 combined stressors in that overburdened area and compare it to non-overburdened areas within the state. And they actually lay this out all on what's called GIS mapping tools. So the DEP has been doing a pretty good job about being up front with all this information. And once you get an idea as to what those impacts are, if they're higher than that 18, you're going to have to do various things that will cost the site a good deal of money if you're above. Or if you have an individual impact that's above by a lot, you're going to get hit pretty hard and try to address that. What's interesting, though, too, is it's the first time that the DEP or any state agency is actually required to turn down an operating permit for an industrial site if they can't get those impacts down. So it's the first time that says you're not going to be able to operate if you keep doing so at this unfair level. So what's your day to day looking like right now when you're pro- this is like is this like the first big project that you're like spearheading? My day to day over the past year has been trying to get the word out as as much as I can as to what the capabilities as of the Enviro Sciences Air Branch are, and of course touch on all my contacts. Um, especially the ones who I've done work with in the past to try to start more business. But then also just try to gain opportunities to do these types of presentations and publications on important topics. Um, and as I said earlier, I chose to focus on offshore wind and environmental justice because both are huge, huge issues and drivers right now regionally and nationally. So there's going to be project opportunities that actually have beneficial impacts on our country going forward. And that's the type of work I'm hoping to get our company associated with. Well, what what's going on in the kind of offshore wind space here in the U.S.? What kind of opportunities do we have there? Sure. Um, last month, the state, the state of New York actually held an auction on six offshore wind leases, and that's how the... That's how the federal government actually gives these things out. I shouldn't say give them out because it costs a lot of money, but <laughs> um, they set up they set up online auctions with qualified bidders, which will always be large large developer companies, oftentimes uh, oftentimes joint ventures with a fossil company, ironically, um, and they go and they try to actually bid. And get control of these of these various lease areas to have the right to develop offshore wind projects. And if you just go back to the example I gave you earlier of the project I, I actually helped run it, it off the coast of Massachusetts, that was only given out four years ago or just under. And since that point, the cost of a cost of lease area has gone up over tenfold. To what we just saw last month off the coast of New York. You saw, I think, for the six leases, a combined $4.35 billion. 
Wow. So a ton of money involved. And you have lots of other states lining up afterward to have their own lease auctions and hopefully bring in that type of interest as well. But at this point, no one honestly knows. So is this work relating to this alliance project that you had kind of referred to on LinkedIn a month ago? Sure. Um, the, the alliance project actually stems from an opportunity I was given at the, at the middle of last year to write for LexisNexis. They have a periodical called Environmental Law, Environmental Law in New York, and they were interested in having me write asked what I wanted to write about. And I thought it might be interesting to look at the intersection of offshore wind and environmental justice. Because that's something something that at the time I couldn't find a lot of information on. Sure. Galley articles or things like that. Um, and obviously I knew that long term there are tons of benefits to these offshore wind projects. They're hugely environmentally friendly long term. But if the industry is going to be the type of leader that they're trying to be, they also have to be serious and hold themselves to a higher standard on environmental justice and try to address those those uh, possible short-term impacts that will come during the construction phase. So what I did was actually create a survey of stakeholders across industry and focus on the types of people who I thought would be impacted by these projects and find out what they thought about it. So I focused on legal uh, consulting, the developers, and then environmental justice or community groups. And I got their feedback on this, on the actual survey questions I developed um, and just find out what they thought. And that paper actually ended up leading LexisNexis in February. So I'm very, very proud of that. But the Alliance project stems off the second step of this project because I it was always my goal to compare the survey findings among the individual subgroups and find out how each part of the industry actually thinks about these topics and how it compares against each other. Um, I didn't get a large enough uh, pool to do those types of anonymous comparisons so I opened up the survey again and trying to go after more environmental justice group participation and just trying to actually keep it posted on our website, which is envirosciences.com slash the Alliance Project to try to, again, get that type of in input and sh show that there are people out there who want to actually give training on these topics and also find out what um, opinions are on these topics. So we don't just make decisions for people, but actually try to develop partnerships with them going forward and try to have their voices heard. Because if you look at these offshore projects and the various, various large infrastructure projects that are going to be coming through in the next decade, decade and a half, it's all the same type of stuff. It's all the same types of issues that we have to be collaborating about now and talking about ways to actually reduce impacts or we're just going to be on top of each other in a couple of years and having the exact same issues and problems that we've had in the past. So my goal was to try to get the conversation started now to avoid as much of that as possible. I really appreciate the the angle you've taken in your work. I think it's really unique and I don't I can't think of many other people working on this specific this specific thing. And it's very interesting cuz when people talk they talk about building an offshore wind project, again I mentioned this already, they're talking about okay, we're going to save the planet by reducing these emissions, but there are these these externalities or these these thing these realities of constructing um, large machinery or large industries that's going to have impacts on the local community and having someone like you who's specifically trying to make sure that this this part is um, is out there in the ethos is understood and also planned for 
I think is is really awesome, and it's really great to have. It's really an essential thing to have to understand that it's not just A B C. It's all these different. There's all these different things going on when you're trying to build a new world or change the way industry works. So I think that's that's cool. Do you spend a lot of time speaking with local community leaders or speaking to people in the community to see how they would want to be to have? I don't know how. I don't know how you would go about calling it like mitigate the. In the justice impacts or have a say in how these projects are being built do you talk to these people a lot yeah i tried i've tried to and it's an ongoing thing that i'm trying to um honestly get better at and get more feedback from but out of all the groups i spoke with during the first part of my project i actually got the smallest uh, survey return from the environmental justice groups and it's I heard a various number of reasons, um, but the most common one was that they just didn't have the staff or the bandwidth at the time to take on another project. And overall, of course, these environmental justice groups are extremely in favor of offshore wind or just like the idea of it anyway, if they haven't been working on on it directly. So a lot of times I heard things like, oh, I have bigger fish to go after right now or I can't take this on or thank you for working on this but I'm sorry we can't help so that's why I want to try to go back to a lot of those contacts and say hey look I, I'm not this type of one and done guy I want to try and be here for long run and finish this project and get as much input as we can you're going to have extended window every opportunity to comment and also we're going to try and do educational opportunities so if there's hypothetically an environmental justice group who hasn't had exposure to the technical topics behind this, we give you give you various webinars or trainings, uh, partner with possibly partner with an offshore wind developer, just to understand what exactly the processes are, and what's actually being talked about going forward. Um, so one of the things I'm actually very very proud of is the project was also asked to be turned into a panel discussion at the International Partnering Forum for Offshore Wind in Atlantic City at the end of next month. And I pulled in four panelists from the from the first part of this project to talk about what's been done to date, um, go through a couple of metrics, but then also spend a lot of time talking about what can be done on collaboration going forward and how do we share our best practices and actually do our best to, as I said, hold the industry to a higher standard and uh, to try and actually reduce these impacts wherever possible. So that's something that's going to be coming up at the end of, the, at the end of next month um, that, as I said, I'm excited to do and hopefully something good comes out of it. I hope so too. Yeah, I don't think you just have to limit yourself to reaching out to environmental justice groups, though. I feel like you could talk to city council members about this or like community leaders, like heads of churches or stuff, like people who are going to be directly impacted by the industry that's building a project on in their community. I think that is, I mean, the environmental justice people, like right on to them, like uh, have them on the podcast, talk about what they're doing is awesome. But I think this, what you're, what you're talking about is really like localized stuff. And I think the, the way to get people aware of the, the impacts is to engage their community directly. But I think either way, I think, I think it's awesome, man. I appreciate you, you spearheading this project and taking this angle. I think it's really, it's really interesting. Um, where, where do you personally want to see like climate policy and industry regulations in the U S and, you know, say 10 years down the line, what kind of place would you want us to be in? That's a good point to ask about because a lot's made about various sustainability goals associated with the year 2030, because all the smartest scientists around the world have been telling us that we have to hold emissions under 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2030. And um, one of the things I learned at MIT and just in my 16 years in this business and what I've seen is honestly, we're not going to be anywhere close to 1.5. It's just not going to happen. Um, and that's, a, I don't want to say that's okay, but I think that's an important reality to everyone understands. But mm-hmm. 
what determines if we get to three and a half or four as opposed to maybe two or just over is the actions we take today and the, and the talks we have about smart growth investment and planning and sustainability today. If, we, if we're good about that and go after this aggressively, we can keep things as, as minimal impact as we can. We'll be over 1.5. That's just going to happen. Outside of incredible technology advancements and also mass adoption of them, which are both kind of unlikely, but I'm not obviously rooting mm-hmm. for both. Um, what I hope for is more buy-in across the spectrum and not just certain cities going after this aggressively, but countries and various international partnerships actually being being willing to be aggressive about their financial commitments and holding each other to various standards to be sure that we're all going after this together. That's what has to happen to save the types of impacts we're talking about. And that's what hasn't happened in the past. So I'm hopeful, optimistic, but it's not going to be one and a half. I appreciate your re- I appreciate the reality. I agree with you on that 1.5 for sure. And I I really I really I like your vision, man. And thank you for sharing. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Really great to have you and hear your perspective. And I got one more for you. If you were walking to a, a time machine and go back 16 years ago and walk into Applebee's, sit down at the bar, and there's younger Chris across from you, what advice would you give to him? Get out of the Applebee's as fast as you possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was a kid at the time. I, I, at the time, I the only thing I knew for sure is I didn't want to do environmental law. So I was trying to find as many answers as I could, as fast as I could. So my advice would be to have those discussions with people who have been in various industries. Talk to people who have interests that align actually with yours. Talk to people who don't. Because those are gonna, those types of conversations are gonna also build you. Somewhere along those lines, you're gonna find some answers and hopefully find a path that actually works out for you. Great, I love it. You can never go wrong just having conversations with people, keeping an open mind, and trying to trying to become better and learn more. So I appreciate your help on that today, man. It's been a, it's been a joy. Absolutely happy to help. You got it, man. All right, everybody. See you soon. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.